0: I want to be alone.
1: It's Tuesday, don't forget.
0: Damn Tuesday, I'll do what I like. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 128 today, which is back to Erica's Choice. What are we talking about today?
0: Today we're talking about the effervescent Cleo de saint Cleo from 5 to 7, from 1962, written and directed by Agnès Varda with Corinne Marchand, Antoine Borsayet, and Dominique Davay. We follow Cleo as she moves through Paris, awaiting test results from her doctor that will confirm whether or not she has incurable cancer. Now, this was my first Agnès Varda film, and I had gone into it thinking it was going to be really depressing. I also had the mistaken impression that it was related to either pregnancy or abortion, so cancer was almost a lighter prospect somehow, but it is not the doer proposition at all I was concerned about, and it manages to feel so fresh and alive some half century later. This was, though, a little bit of a bittersweet viewing because Anya's Varda sadly passed away in 2019, but she was working and inspiring up until the last. So let's talk just a bit about Anya Varda before we get into the film itself. She was the only woman director in the French New Wave, though she may be more closely associated with the left bank movement, and we'll talk about both of those periods and the players during this episode. She reminds me just a bit in that respect of Vera Cittilova, whom we discussed in Daisies, her being the lone female in the Czech New Wave. And of course, more than anything, we want to encourage folks to get into Agnes Varda's filmography. By the way, did you know this? In 2019, the BBC polled 368 film experts from around the world in order to name the 100 best films by female directors. And Varda was the most named director. She had six different films on the list, and Cleo was number two.
1: Who made that list? Who was behind that?
0: It was the BBC.
1: So it seems like it might be more Eurocentric, say, than if the New York Times made that list or some American entity.
0: Yeah, the experts were from 84 different countries. And I'm amazed that this was only her second feature. And she was in her early 30s at the time and relatively new to cinema as a whole. She had been for many, many years a very successful photographer and photojournalist, and I think you'll see her impeccable eye for composition throughout this film. When she was talking about her first film, La Pointe Courte, she talked about without ever having any experience or having been an assistant, without having gone to film school, she took photographs of everything she wanted to film. And that those photographs were basically models for her shots. It sounds like she was basically storyboarding. So are you ready to get into the film itself?
1: Absolutely. It begins with this tarot reading. And this environment that it starts in, somewhat unexpectedly, is full of all these beautiful colors and textures. I wanted to ask you right off the bat, was that color shocking to you at the beginning? Because all you see prior to that, probably our black and white promotional stills or clips from the film, the trailer, how did that explosion of color relatively at the beginning prepare you for what followed? Did it start you off off balance in a way? Or did that unexpected warmth of this opening environment sort of ease you into things?
0: I was totally dazzled by it. And the actual cards and their hands as they're moving the cards are in color. And then when they begin to speak, that takes us back to black and white. And so it seems like this really exciting visual statement that this filmmaker is making. And especially that kind of break all the rules mentality.
1: Well, the unwelcome thing here, the thing that we learned during the course of this reading, her illness is revealed to us right away, at least to some degree. It's a complicated proposition, I assume, for a fortune teller to have to deliver such bad news as they perceive it. Another thing I wanted to ask you right off the top here, how much stock do you put in the fortune teller's response? Because I don't think either one of us are inclined to give the tarot much credence when it comes to that sort of thing. But I have to admit, I fell into it a little. In spite of my rational self, I do take on this feeling that she is doomed. And that is only because of what this tarot card reader says to us. The implication that that reader knows more than we do.
0: I feel like it's more of a psychological tool that it's cueing off of what Cleo herself is telling us that she already knows the results. She's already crying at this point. She already feels doomed herself. And the tarot card reader sort of dancing around it a little bit isn't really helping. And Cleo here is clearly terrified. And it's kind of intriguing for me to look at this woman who is Resorting to spiritualism in the face of this major uncertainty of her future, but who is just resigned to it all the same.
1: Now, do you feel like that's probably a pretty common impulse for people to cast about in light of this terrible news for anything that can give them comfort, even if it contradicts what they normally feel or believe in on a day to day basis?
0: Yes, because I am a massage therapist and I teach other modalities that might be on sort of the alternate spectrum. I come at them from a science approach, but a lot of people don't. Now, I mentioned that this was my first Agnes Varda. Do you remember coming to her for the first time and what that film was?
1: I definitely do. My first film of hers was Vagabond, and I got that via the Criterion Collection, specifically through Waterloo Video. When I used to work at Waterloo, the record store, we had a sister video store that was connected to us. And that was when my film education really sort of began in earnest, having access to all of that stuff for cheap or free all of the time.
0: I lived right down the street from it. I used to go there all the time, but we didn't know each other. Right.
1: Wouldn't it be fun if our unknowingly somehow our hands had brushed while we were lingering <laughs> over the clayo from five to seven. But that was the first one that I came to. And then this was the second one. After that, And I think this really is the best choice to introduce people to her work. It's so perfectly vibrant and it's accessible without any of the negative connotations that usually come with that word. And I think it really just sets the table for everything that follows in her career.
0: So can we get into Cleo herself a little bit? Sure. Now, Corinne Marchand is playing her here and she's a beautiful woman. And that beauty is a theme in the film. Specifically, that her face is essentially her fortune, or really the fortune of any woman. And there's a recurring motif of mirrors and reflections throughout the film. It kind of reminds me of World on a Wire, but used in a completely different way. How would you
1: describe her as we begin to meet her here? What adjectives would you use if you were just telling someone about this character?
0: Right now, in the first moments of the film, all I have is beautiful and scared and maybe a little vapid, if I'm being honest. What was your first impression of her?
1: The other things I would throw in or maybe adjust according to what you said, I would say famous, at least modestly. That has to be in there a little bit. As a result of that, she's a little spoiled. Maybe instead of vapid, I might substitute that with childlike or maybe even sheltered. Is a better word for that? Because she must be looked after to a certain degree. It seems to be implied in the beginning.
0: Treated like a China doll, as she says later.
1: She's isolated. She's stylish and attractive, obviously. But is she appealing in that way? Or does she seem selfish to you?
0: I'm thinking about those mirrors again. And that she's constantly looking at herself. But it seems more to be that this perception of reality is this constant reminder that she is in fact seen and examined at all times by the rest of the world. So am I perpetuating this idea then that her face and her beauty are all that she has to sustain her? Because she says ugliness is death, but she's also facing a literal death possibly. So with all of those adjectives that you used and this possible death sentence, Do you actually care what happens to her right now?
1: This is one of the things that's so fun about this film. I do, but not because of her characteristics as they're presented to us, but because of how Varda presents it and how Marchand portrays it. Because it's such a question to start off with. Do you empathize with her or do you have to warm up to her someone? And I really like the way that Varda employs contradictions that she uses here compared especially to the rest of her new wave brethren who would have been more in your face about this sort of thing. It's more subtle and it makes those that might be in her corner to begin with have to work a little harder. She isn't just antagonizing the squares or the establishment. She's making it a little more complicated to find, for example, the easy feminist foothold by making this woman someone that you might not necessarily align yourself with based upon your initial impressions of her. Because like you say, I think at this point in her life, her vanity, at least in part, is what keeps her going. It's keeping her alive. That's not an appealing idea necessarily, but maybe it's more relatable than the viewer would like to admit. And then the gradual erosion of that vanity, once this is established in the beginning, is a really nice touch. The accoutrements that are the catalyst for this transformation and the evolution that we perceive because of that, she sheds the hat, then she sheds the wig, and she keeps going until we get down to the most sincere, unadorned, purer version of her by the end. And all this vanity and pretense is stripped away, and she can directly engage with this news, this test result, with nothing as a buffer. Or maybe that's just the way I see it. How does this transformation affect you as she goes along? Do you see it as a move towards something more genuine, or is there some other way that you would portray that?
0: I'm probably in that second wave feminism that she's part of the problem okay. to begin with. But that's not really fair. But I do really find myself so drawn to her, especially with the wig moment, which is my favorite moment in the film, because she's a different woman at the end. And she's a woman I want to know. I don't feel like I've ever been one of those folks who has causeted another woman or another person because I think that she's just so fragile or the world would be too much for her. And I certainly don't want to think that I am that kind of woman. And I find myself instinctively pushed away from really beautiful people. There's nothing I feel like I can engage in with them.
1: The thing you were saying about instinctively separating yourself from the beautiful people in that way, do you feel like that stems from an insecurity on your part? Or is that more to do with the fact that You just don't put any value in those things the same way other people do.
0: If I'm being honest, one has to lead from the other, I think. It starts with being pushed away from those groups in my youngest days, having nothing to be on the same playing field with them, probably developing an insecurity or chip on my shoulder after then to say, well, they've got nothing to teach me about. Right.
1: That Groucho Marx thing of, I wouldn't want to join a club that would have me as a member.
0: Probably. And when I look at her here, she is basically above the quotidian worries of everyone else in that cafe. She gets stuff for free, which has never happened to me. So I find myself not being intrigued by her character yet as such. I'm intrigued by the film. The one thing
1: I'm intrigued about as far as her character goes in that scene you mentioned in the cafe, I'm intrigued about how she relates to her own music. That being such a big part of my background, how to begin with, before we arrive there, she feels a little embarrassed about it, maybe doesn't want to talk about it. And then you get to the cafe, she's absent-mindedly puttering around. She puts on her own song in the jukebox, the same song you heard earlier during a ride in the taxi, and it feels like she's tossing it out there, sort of like, do you know who I am? And she's not so embarrassed about it now when she's seeking some validation. So this ebb and flow as to how she feels about her own art, that part of it's interesting to me. And something else that you brought up earlier, the mirrors in this, they are so very important in this journey. They're often incorporated into these moments in which she is under the most stress, these little moments of truth. And like with her wardrobe, as she loses it along the way, these mirrors are signposts of her progression, I feel like. And what you said about them earlier is only about half the equation for me, the part about her being looked at all the time. I think that, very interestingly, this emphasizes that there is definitely an external element that seems like a necessity. It isn't just an internal process, this self-analysis as she's going along. She has to regard her physical form to take a full inventory of things and progress, I think. So much of her identity is wrapped up in appearance that it has to be taken on as part of this evolution. Now, based on all of that, the way that this is presented, the way she regards herself even... How do you think Cleo feels about her own femininity? Because she seems to enjoy certain aspects of it, taking advantage of being considered beautiful, reveling in accumulating these accessories that accentuate that. She's vain, yes, but there is also something that keeps you from feeling that she's hollow. What do you attribute that to?
0: I think your point about the mirrors serving different purposes is a great one because I'm thinking about a couple of moments. One... When she's being looked at from the outside, we as the viewer are literally on the outside looking in when she's trying on different hats. To me, that says there's nothing here that's happening that we are part of. She's not revealing herself in the same way yet. And then later on after that, there's a glass that's shot through with a bullet hole. After she's made this big transformation, it seems like that idea of us looking through into something is completely destroyed at that point. We are entirely inside and of her at that moment. And so I don't think she's hollow. I think she's not understood. I was reading something completely unrelated to this recently. And the suggestion was this main character had been beautiful and was a twin. But her face had been destroyed. And she was talking about how all beautiful people are part of the same club and they know instinctively we are somehow better than the rest, but we have to play it off like we don't know that. And so all of this stuff that she's a part of being closeted, getting stuff for free, it's just sort of rules of the game.
1: I think what sets her apart for me in this case, there is a certain type of innocence and a purity and more importantly, a willing to give back that i perceive in this character that makes her different from that
0: and i feel like i'm making her out to be somehow a monster or that i think that she's a monster i'm just not as interested in her as i am as the film progresses so i don't mean to put it at this you know high level of hatred or something like that because
1: even at the beginning she's not aloof or cruel or any of these other qualities that you might usually attribute to the beautiful and shallow And I think the way that I pick up the most on that is how happy she is to have affection reflected back to her. She has this meeting in the afternoon with her lover and he tells her, I'll take you out on Friday. He's kind of dismissive of her. She's not a priority to him. One, will she even see Friday? We don't know that at this point. We don't know how serious things are. But the more important thing that I take from that is just how much she would like to be loved. And not just for her beauty and not put up on a pedestal, but in a genuine two-way street kind of way. She wants to receive it and give that back.
0: Which is the most relatable thing. That's the most honest human emotion I think there is. Getting back to the cafe for just a moment, I want to talk about one of my favorite artistic flourishes here. And that's the idea that we're party to the internal monologues of other characters, as well as being able to eavesdrop on the varied and fascinating conversations of those happening all around her, even if she's not aware of them. And I think the first time that I personally saw this concept was in Before Sunrise when I was much younger. And I loved it then. And it's wonderful to go back to something that was obviously incredibly influential on that film. And to me, that suggests that there's such a complete worldview happening here by Varda, And it belies her experience level. There's curiosity about everyone and everything, and specifically about the everyday of normal life. And this is where I wanted to get into a bit about the French New Wave here, when we're talking about breaking all the rules and experimenting. So, first and foremost, are you, Cole, a fan of the French New Wave?
1: Most definitely. The impact of that movement. is incalculable, I think. I will always be in favor of experimentation and energy and rebellion. I believe, to some degree at least, in the auteur theory. I appreciate the attention that they brought to filmmakers that up to that point were underappreciated, like Nick Ray. I love the 400 Blows, especially. I like Jules and Jim. I appreciate what a jolt Breathless was. I think Shoot the Piano Player is the only one of the established canon that I have yet to crack. I've tried it a couple times now, and it just does not resonate with me. I am not on its wavelength whatsoever. Do you have favorites? As a Francophile, how do you feel about it?
0: I do have favorites. Jules et Jim would probably be my favorite. I couldn't care less about Breathless, honestly, Mm. and I've seen it multiple times.
1: But you appreciate its status as an icon and its keystone position here in the movement.
0: 100%. And I don't get angry at any of these films because... France in the 50s and 60s, nothing ever looked so cool. I think in most, the worst excesses seem to be creating idols and a sense of self-importance. And probably the same criticisms that people apply to Quentin Tarantino, movie mad, stealing from other things. And to give you a bit of context here, Cleo came out in 1962, that was a year after Jules et Jim two years after Breathless. For now, though, we're really still just in what is sort of the first act. Cleo distracting herself, doing these things that make her feel good, which are tied to her physical appearance. Trying on hats. We see these mirrors everywhere again. And there's some foreboding that's happening here. Angèle cautions her, never wear new things on a Tuesday.
1: Now, in all your Francophile travels, have you ever... Heard that before, that you never wear new clothes on a Tuesday? Because superstition just takes the fun out of everything.
0: Never heard that ever. No European travel has ever indicated to me that that's a widespread thing. Have you heard that before?
1: Never heard that before. But it did lead me to another question. And I think you were on your way to this answer already, maybe in what I anticipate you saying here. But how crucial to what Varda is trying to say is the way that fashion is central to the French identity?
0: I think ultimately Varda is saying something a little bit more interesting than that. I think she's saying that it is integral to a specific type of woman. So for example, if you look at photos of Varda working, you would not say this woman is wrapped in fashion. But Cleo certainly is, and this image of her is what is so important. This kind of mid-level, moderately successful pop singer has to put on this specific face. In the specific clothes, and she's treated well because of it. But there are all of these other women circulating around her that don't seem to have to live by those same rules. And we're constantly looking at these other women too, older women, younger women, larger women, smaller women, that they have something so interesting to say as well. And I like that we have here in a moment this prominent image of a wedding dress, because it says to me, that Cleo may never have a chance to wear this.
1: I think that you and I are thinking similarly about this, at least, because for me, it works on a more specific level that goes beyond being French. It's more about standards of feminine beauty in particular, like you say, and the way that some of those things have to do with your natural physical appearance, your body, your given characteristics, and then the other part of that equation being the parts of beauty that are external process, makeup wardrobe. Those things that you can achieve regardless of your born physical appearance. And there are a lot of variables here in terms of what it means to be stereotypically feminine. You mentioned some of them. Depending on your position in society, it's different for all of these women. Some you have a great deal of control over. Some you have no control over. But the thing I think that affects me the most, what I appreciate the most of this, is the way that the specter of death puts all of those things in perspective, no matter where you fall in the
0: hierarchy. Well, I love here how visually interesting this section of the film is as we start to go on this journey through Paris by taxi. Because Paris really becomes a character here. And I'm also so intrigued because this section is really female-centric. Beyond Cleo and Angèle, they have this extended conversation with their female taxi driver. And they listen to the radio She hears one of her songs. But I was really drawn to this duality here. There's the female announcer talking about shampoo. The male announcer gets to actually cover the news. And there's so much about the battle in Algiers happening and the recovery of Edith Piaf, who, by the way, sadly did not have much longer on the planet to go. It seems like a lot of foreshadowing of events to come, possible fates.
1: The visual part of this, the appeal of this, is twofold for me, particularly in this section. It is a thrill to get to see the city as a backdrop there. Paris in the 60s, that idea has immediate appeal, at least to us. And then you see so much of it shot on the street, and it's full of all these amazing details that just immerse you in her world. This long cab ride that you talk about with the radio as the backdrop. At one point, there's a poster for a Bunuel film in the background. It's fun to see that. There's the street performer doing that
0: frog eating trick. Gross. I was hoping you weren't going to mention that.
1: It definitely, even that makes me miss Paris so much. In fact, we turned around and watched Zazie le Metro immediately after this pretty much just because we wanted to stay in this 1960s Paris world. It's that great thing that cinema does of transporting you to a place that you can't otherwise visit at times that you can't otherwise be. So let's go back to Paris as soon as we can. What do you say?
0: Yes, please. Oui, oui, mon petit chouchou.
1: And then part two of that is technical. Let's talk about all of this wonderful camera movement that we see here. There's some zoom work in it, but so much of it, what appeals to me, the thing I like to see the most, these beautiful pans, all these lateral moves that feel like they're quickly taking you from one place to another appropriately for a movie that's kind of a countdown clock, it leaves the viewer with this sweeping feeling, like it's urging us to keep moving down the street and on to the next thing that she hopes will distract her from this dilemma that she faces. Varda was a genius with a camera, both conventional photography and cinematic. She's such a deft editor, she's brilliant with pace. I like how much it was a whole, complete process for her. The writing, the shooting, the editing, directing actors, each of these things were inextricable from the others for her, and you can really feel it. In fact, she even coined a term for this, sinecriture, which I love, which translates essentially to filmic writing, and it perfectly encapsulates her type of fully integrated approach to making movies.
0: Well, Cleo and Angel arrive home, and we get to see how Cleo essentially prepares to be seen. There's extravagant lingerie and some hair upkeep. And my favorite part, the exercise, which happens while she's smoking.
1: She looks almost like an angel hanging in that frame. It's such a beautiful shot. Again, going back to Varda's composition, this thing looks wonderful through and through.
0: There's all white happening here. And Angele is cautioning her to not talk about her illness because men hate that. So it seems like there's also an implication maybe she's just a hypochondriac because of this whole beauty is health thing so long as she's beautiful she's fine
1: it's another one of those instances i think where the audience perceives more about the character than her fellow characters do it's a nerve-wracking process here to wait for test results and put on top of that having an artistic temperament let's say you combine all of that with legitimate potential bad news And I would be hard to deal with too, maybe. And it could certainly make for a more insufferable protagonist. But what we get here is a more nuanced character study than that. What I especially admire is how organic her evolution is against this backdrop of a ticking clock for a less accomplished filmmaker trying to shoehorn all of this development into a highly regimented film in which we're always keeping an eye on the time. That's not an easy thing to do this action occurs in almost real time. It's a slightly truncated version of the two-hour time frame suggested by the title. Are you particularly aware of that sweep of time as it goes along? Because time is obviously incredibly important and a focus here. For a movie that is about what should be a grueling interminable wait, it flies by even though it constantly makes you aware of the passage of small chunks of time. How does that affect you?
0: I'm amazed that it does seem like it flies by, while there are still these huge chunks where it feels like everything is allowed to breathe. The action is allowed to breathe. Cleo's allowed to breathe. It doesn't feel hyper or sped up.
1: No unnecessary shortcuts taken with character development.
0: Absolutely. It's almost like she knows exactly what she's doing. Varda, I mean. And... It's set up to allow in those small spaces us to recognize and enjoy, but also feel that sense of anxiety, definitely without shortcuts. I mean, how is it that we learn so much about how the everyday person is thinking and feeling about their love affairs and Algeria and so many aspects of Cleo's character? It's a marvel to me. I don't know how she achieved it.
1: I can tell you what helps me process. And maybe you feel the same way about this. What helps me actually, these many chapters that are announced in these small intervals as I'm going through what she's going through, that, and then the ways that the other characters comment on the passage of time. It enables me to look at it with one, a little more philosophical distance, and then those small chunks of time, they're easier to digest right now. All I'm concentrating on if I am her is getting from 512 to 518.
0: Moment to moment existence.
1: But I look at it on a large scale, too. We see two hours pass on the clock, yes, but we see Marchand's face cycle through entire seasons in the course of this short afternoon.
0: Bob and Maurice arrive, and they're her pianist, lyricist, and composer for these popular songs that she sings, and they are a pair of jokers. By the way, Bob is played by Michel Legrand, who also did the score here, and I know him from the score for The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. She's working with them and she's getting kind of petulant that she was never taught to read music. So she seems like kind of a puppet of theirs. And then it starts to change her singing to the camera and these full orchestral swells as she sings about her body decaying. Things have been kind of okay for the first part of the film, and this is where everything shifts. She's done with all of this. She goes behind that black curtain and comes out in the black dress and pulls her wig off. And I think she just got about 100 times more interesting here. Now, I really like these ballads and these torch songs that she's singing. It seems like the early 60s here is kind of predominantly post-war cabaret almost. What did you think of the music?
1: I love it. We cannot overstate how important Legrand's score is for this thing. And then their appearance too. So much about this, you feel a seismic shift in this scene in the film. The score, first of all, it does so many things. It's propulsive and buoyant when it needs to be. It feels like it's on the cusp, like you're saying, we're in this transitional period. And then when Legrand shows up in the film, his presence, his personality matches what the music does. It feels like they're modernity coming especially considering how much pop music was about to change. In two years, we're going to go from JJ Girls to the Beatles. I love their influence on her as performers in this scene, too. I like the way the camera swings. This is my favorite moment as well. When she began singing this new song, Varda wrote all the lyrics for these songs, and they are fantastic.
0: Really? I had no idea.
1: This musical interlude, it both brings the film to life in a way that it hadn't been up to this point, and then just as quickly it brings it down to earth as this song launches into its final verse, everything goes dark and strings come in from out of nowhere and it is momentarily devastating. There is no better scene in the entire film at demonstrating what an emotional roller coaster that Cleo is actually on. And I do want to give a special credit to Legrand for what he contributes to this scene. He is so great in it. He adds just what the movie needs at this point, much like Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina do when they pop up later. That is one of my absolute favorite things about the French new wave movement. These crossovers, the way they pop up in each other's work so much. There's something so lo-fi and charming and innocent about it. It feels like it's 50% solidarity with your revolutionary comrades in arms. And then 50% let's put on a show. It also makes for fun little in-jokes that yield more each time you return to them because you've seen other things in the meantime. The first time around, This short film, it might just be a playful interlude that helps Cleo pass the time, a nice momentary distraction, but then once you become better acquainted with the French New Wave and then come back to this, it works on multiple levels. It's still that distraction, but now we also see that it's Godard poking fun at his own reputation, and more importantly, and more fun for me, Varda getting him to do something that it feels like only she could get him to do.
0: Because she made that film.
1: It's a little extra reward for the viewer and it tells us about Varda's skill and influence among her contemporaries.
0: Before we talk a little bit more about that, I want to mention just quickly my second favorite moment and it incorporates the music. There's that kid with a xylophone and that sound turns into other music and then there's a flock of birds that sends that music away and it's wonderful. After her pulling the wig off and declaring herself, I think this is such a fantastic, again, breaking the rules example. So Varda is sometimes referred to as the godmother or the mother of the French New Wave, which to me suggests that she existed somehow outside of it rather than being a player in it. I've seen her included instead with the Left Bank Cinema, which, think Chris Marker and Alain René by example,
1: Her husband, Jacques Demy.
0: And Left Bank Cinema predated the new wave by just a little bit. Left Bank Cinema was strongly tied to literature, to documentary filmmaking. And they were also incredibly interested in experimentation and treatment of film as art. But they were older. They weren't as adept in film history and analysis. They weren't film critics like the new wave were. And they also collaborated a lot more, which you're referring to. And she was so intent on that, the music and the writing and the cinematography, all one. Everybody has a chance to collaborate as part of this whole, every piece going for the same message. So do you think that she gets assigned this specifically feminine role rather than being spoken of as a player because simply she was a woman? Do you think her films were overlooked in that space because she was a woman?
1: Definitely some of both. And I balk a little bit at this characterization of her as a godmother or a mother or a grandmother rather than just another filmmaker, a very important filmmaker. And them positioning her that way, it seems a little contradictory to what was happening because the new wave, they were basically shaking off what they referred to as the tradition of quality in French cinema. Think classic Hollywood with the studio system and decades of embedded craft and technique ossified in place. They were keen to break all that down, but not as keen, I guess, to explicitly address gender disparity when it comes to those things, which does seem a little unfair because, like you're saying, the left bank movement that she was more specifically affiliated with, they preceded and inspired in addition to existing alongside the new wave. I do like that they advocated for each other. I do really appreciate that. If I was to make a distinction between the two, I think of the left bank as the elder statesman, and in this case, woman, of that whole movement. And I say this with deep affection for the films and filmmakers of the new wave, but maybe the left bank were more like the arm of the movement that weren't so insufferably up their own ass that you could probably stand (laughs) to be in a room with them for more than five minutes. They do share that pop sensibility, but she seems to have matured earlier. Than a lot of her counterparts. She's less frenetic than them. They both embrace experimental techniques to one degree or another, but I think of the experimentation of the new wave to be, at least in part, designed specifically for provocation, whereas the left bank feels more about exploration. Both approaches being valuable. The left bank is just not as contrary for contrariness sake, I feel like. It's the difference between The new wave setting out directly in response to something versus the left bank existing, just following their own instincts because they were looking for something more or something different. It's internal versus external motivation. A lot of the time, the personal versus the political and all of this is borne out if the myth is true that Varda had no filmmaking experience and that she'd only seen 20 films or so before she made one. This bespeaks, I think what I'm saying about this being innate. When it came to cinema, I think she had little to no interest in tearing anything down. That's just simply because she wasn't even cognizant of the extent of the architecture. How can you know only having seen 20 films? Unless you're a freshman in college, you don't read 20 books and then consciously decide you're going to completely deconstruct the modern novel.
0: Uh, Speak for yourself, sir.
1: (laughs) You just follow your artistic inclinations. And if that happens, so be it. She obviously had experience with composition from her photography, but that is a very different and much more solitary discipline than filmmaking.
0: Both, I think, specifically for Varda being about looking at these people that we don't often see and getting to know them really well inside and out. And again, her impeccable eye, we're going to see that here in a moment when she meets up with her model friend, Dorothee, and they set off on an errand to pick up and deliver a film to their friend Raúl, a projectionist. And that's that short film. Because we get an incredibly fun scene again as they're tooling around the city.
1: Aside from the song that we just talked about, this is my favorite scene. I love the nature of this conversation and how unguarded Cleo is with Dorote. How she admits to feeling that examination would find only her limits. She's talking for the first time in the film to another person, specifically a woman, who doesn't want, need, or rely on her for anything.
0: Not in her employ.
1: And that's incredibly liberating, it feels like. It helps a lot that Dorote is reasonable. She takes pride in herself, and she understands, for example, that the artists she works with are looking at something greater than just a solitary human figure. She injects this universality, this larger philosophy into the conversation here. And I just really like her. I like her philosophy, I like what she offers Cleo, and Cleo is at her best when she's engaging with other like-minded spirits that can help elevate her. It's the very definition here, I feel like, of something to live for, this brief encounter that she has here. This is what it feels like to be young and dynamic and fun and thoughtful, out and about. Every errand seems full of adventure or possibility. Who will I run into today when I'm doing this thing? I love how much of this intensely personal film takes place out in the street, in public.
0: The big question for me is, will Dorote learn how to get the car out of second at some <laughs> point? But there's a brief interruption to that happiness. There's that superstition and an omen again because there's a broken mirror. And it feels like at this point, as Cleo is leaving Dorote, she's walking through what feels like a dark tunnel back out into the world. And that's where we see this huge bullet hole in glass where a man was shot through the window of a cafe. So that doesn't seem good. Our world is literally shattered at this point. So instead, Cleo at Dorothe's suggestion goes to a nearby park to experience some nature, kind of get out of herself a bit.
1: Before we get into this final act, let's talk a little bit about the difference between your expectations of this and then what you actually encountered. When you first heard this synopsis, did you expect this to be considerably more grim than it turned out to be? Because ostensibly, this is about those nail-biting hours that a woman spends waiting for a potential cancer diagnosis.
0: Yes, I was expecting grim on we more than anything, and I got the complete opposite of that. I got examination, both self and from the outside. I got ebullience, almost. I got something that feels like so much more than just that description.
1: I think my response was the same way back when. It doesn't sound like a barrel of laughs, no, but it turns out to be so playful and with a considerable amount of humor and charm. It's so graceful. And I chalk all of that up to Varda and her immense skill telling this story. She's never so strident as a number of her new wave contemporaries, And it shows up with how tenderly she handles some of these stories. One more distinction I would make would be that it feels like they had something to prove, she had something to share. It's a significantly different approach. And that makes me think a lot about what it must have been like for her to work in that environment. We should make clear that it was a mutually supportive network of filmmakers that she was in, but the French New Wave, for better or worse, was definitely a boys club which meant that she was often the only woman on a crew and even more difficult and complicated, the only woman asking for financing in an environment and time that might not have been the most progressive. I think this is what makes her achievements even more remarkable over the course of her life. Her perseverance and dedication to following her creative bent, regardless of support or lack thereof, that's inspiring all by itself. Aside from a brief hiatus here and there, like you said, she never stopped working. And the things that Varda must have encountered. I think they loom large in the character of Cleo as well. I think as much as we are aware of Varda now and how significant her contributions obviously were, I think that she was written out of some of that history as it was occurring. And Cleo's fame with her career and success with interpersonal relationships is similarly modest and or overshadowed. Varda doesn't beat us over the head with these things. Obviously, that's not her way, but it is all there for us to find especially as we move into this more subtle and nuanced third act. as I feel like things are starting to even out a little bit. She's not careening all over town anymore, trying to find something to desperately connect to. She takes another taxi ride here. And then we find her alone in the park performing for no one. She's approached by a soldier trying to pick her up here. Quiet here, isn't it? It was. Thank you very much. (laughs) But their conversation, it quickly seems to turn sincere in spite of its beginnings.
0: He definitely turns out to be more benign and interesting than just some pickup artist.
1: Although he doesn't get off to the greatest start here with this girls just like to be loved, or I guess does he? Because it may be a sexist generalization as he is thinking of it, but I think it's true of her in a different way. I think that both she and Varda have shown us that it can be true and it not be lazy or a stereotype. Maybe more a case of People just like to be loved. And this one just happens to be a woman.
0: And he really cuts through all of this noise when they have this conversation about dying not being a huge deal, but dying for nothing is because he's on leave here from Algiers and we understand what that means. And he seems incredibly intent on being with her once he understands where it is that she's going to. He's got a deadline as well, and there could be death at the end of his, too. And by the way, this character, Antoine, he's played by Antoine Boursier, and he was an opera and a theater director, as well as the father of Agnes Varda's first child.
1: Some of this here reminds me a little bit of one of your favorites, Linklater's Before Trilogy. I know you love that a lot. I don't know if you saw that in this, but I see this chance encounter. And while the stakes in the Before Trilogy aren't nearly this grim... It has this similarity in terms of, this is honest. This is not born of desperation. This is true connection. This is one of those great examples of the thing that you were looking so much for finally shows up when you stop looking for it. I don't attach anything negative the way I see this play out in terms of the desire to achieve connection like that. I think it manifests itself here very organically. How about you?
0: I don't see anything negative in it. I was poised to do so, though, because basically... She's practically immediately accosted the second that she walks through the park. But the writing itself is what totally turns that around for me. Take their dialogue, and especially Antoine's, I don't think a male auteur of the time would have come up with something so subtle yet deft. So for me, it comes back to something we've said multiple times. This worldview that she has, this interest in the world and the people in it, is what sets her apart from basically everyone else, poetic but unpretentious, deeply interested in the human.
1: Well, we're nearing the end of her allotted two hours, at least according to the title. Shall we talk about that title for a second? Because I think it works on multiple levels. Obviously, it's about the specific time frame that the film covers, but it's also this really interesting inversion of a French idiom, Saint-Cassette. Is that a figure of speech that you were familiar with before this? No. Well, it is traditionally thought of as the time of day that illicit rendezvous take place.
0: Ooh la la. That's
1: exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I have it written here in my notes. <laughs> but instead of earthly pleasures, she is spending this time in a liaison with her mortality. Instead of the little death, it's the big sleep, basically. And it again, I think, highlights Varda's ability to mine the culture for these unexpected associations that subtly affect how you might feel about them from this point on.
0: Hang on just a second, because that was <laughs> really good. You like I that? To, yeah, I do. That's one of my favorites ever that you said.
1: Well, then you'll like this too. In keeping with that, we come to the aspect of the film's philosophy that I agree with most. Nudity should be for everyone, he says. Just one hundred
0: percent on both of those.
1: She is on her way to the hospital here with the soldier, and quite reasonably. It's hard to maintain the jovial atmosphere, even though he's really trying to, as they get closer to this destination and the potential for disaster encroaches. Everything goes quiet, they say, when they're getting closer to the hospital. It certainly does when you are in this quarter.
0: And we have another trip on the trolley ride this time. And I love that he starts referring to her by her real name. There's something deeply personal there, a deeply personal connection that he's making. So at last they arrive at the hospital, but the doctor is not there, which must feel maddening.
1: Now that they're so close to the end of this episode, there's a bit of a left turn here with this business of no need to find out the results right now. We have plenty of time since he's not there and they're not available. Is this one last bit of bargaining or putting off the inevitable on her part? What motivates it on his part, do you think? Is he just trying to make her feel better? Now that they've gone through all of this, trying to make this last diversion, how do you read that?
0: To me, it feels like him trying to grasp a few more moments for himself as well. They did just have that startling image of seeing the little infant transported in kind of the incubator across the street because everything is so incredibly fragile, but they're not treated as such, which to me is then underscored because just as he said that, The doctor does pull up in his own car, which he doesn't get out of. And basically, matter-of-factly says she'll need two months of chemo and she'll be fine. But he addresses, he being the doctor, addresses this news almost to Antoine instead of her. He gives Antoine the comfort of saying that she's going to be okay, that we'll take good care of her, not to her. And I think that's an incredibly well-observed detail by Varda. It's still that the world is going on around her, and she doesn't really have a choice in the matter.
1: And color me guilty here. I don't know that I noticed that as much when I was watching this. I'm coming at this from a completely different perspective. We've had severe cancer in my immediate family on a couple of different occasions. And so I'm approaching this basically just thinking, I just need relief. I don't care whether it's through a third party because when the wait is over and you get the news, then that's what becomes manageable. And I think the movie definitely effectively conveys that. The relief of even not so great news versus the turmoil of waiting, this limbo, this purgatory that exists before your problem can be defined and a specific tailored plan to combat it can be implemented. So I was more focused on What we do now, as the culmination of Cleo's journey, her evolution too, so that I missed that part of it.
0: And I don't think any of that is wrong, because we is the operative word, meaning that we are in this together, but also she is still going to be managed to a certain extent. I think it just gives us more to talk about as the years go by.
1: Well, one of those things that I have right here, the next question I had for you, this connection... Is this what she was in search of? Has she found it to her satisfaction with this soldier, do you feel like? Because sometimes it takes that brush with death to get us to relinquish those lesser parts of ourselves, that vanity, that childishness. Sometimes even death is not enough, though. But I don't feel that about Cleo. How do you feel? Is this a lasting lesson for this character?
0: I think she's still processing it, which feels completely realistic because she says, maybe I'm happy. She's not quite sure. There's not enough evidence yet to say one way or the other. But it seems like she's become more herself in every moment of the film. Once she's broken free from what she is told to feel and do and sing. We're also forced to stop constantly looking at her and evaluating her. But it still doesn't mean that everything changes in a moment. Not in this moment, maybe.
1: So how does this leave you about the prospect of getting into Varda's further work?
0: I can't wait. Months ago, we saw the trailer for Jane B. par Agnes V, and I can't wait to see that one. And there's so much else to dig into. Do you think in general, people who are sort of the naysayers of French New Wave might feel differently about it if they started with this film?
1: I definitely think so. When I think of Varda's body of work, aside from her doing whatever she damn well felt like, there's not really an overt thematic through line or a defining aesthetic characteristics the way you think of some filmmakers. Not so rigid or immediately recognizable the way it might be with someone like, say Wes Anderson, someone that has developed a brand as it were, but it's also not the work of a journey woman. What ties it all together for me and what I think is great here, the perfect starting point is her voice. There's a particular poetry to her observations that you come to recognize as her once you go through enough of her films. And that extends into the technical aspects as well, particularly the way the camera is handled. There aren't necessarily signature moves here, but there is an inventiveness and a casual joy in the movement. You put these things together and it becomes more like a case where you recognize a good friend's handwriting on a letter as opposed to their business logo that everyone knows. And with the things I said earlier, I didn't mean to imply that she wasn't political. That shows up too and I think it is very subtly indicated And easy to appreciate here as well. Making films that focus on women and their experiences, their thoughts, their desires, then and now, that is a political act. I just mean to convey that she didn't trumpet her politics or wear them on her sleeve the same way as some of her contemporaries. Because you look at something like Vagabond and that is a definitely political film. And then that short time that she was in California, her work became more explicitly political She made documentaries about Vietnam, about the Black Panthers. She says that California didn't radicalize her, quote unquote. And I believe that. But it is interesting to me that these more overt political expressions took place in a sort of exile, or at least far from home in a foreign place. But to get back to the beginning and the question you asked, yes, I think this is the perfect entry point for all of those films that are to follow.
0: So how about then your recommendation? Did you stick with Anya Varda?
1: I did, as a matter of fact. One of my favorites from her more recent output, I want to recommend The Gleaners and I from 2000. It's a documentary that she directed that tracks a variety of gleaners engaging in collecting a variety of things. And gleaning is a tradition that goes back centuries in which people would come in and collect what remained after farmers completed their harvest. It's basically a culture of people living on other people's leftovers. And there are a lot of connotations here, but the duality I fix on is on the one hand, you have the frugality and not letting things go to waste, saving things that are left behind. But obviously you also have the associations that often come with people that are living on society's margins. This is a practice, obviously, that has evolved over time to take place in more areas than just farms and with more objects than just crops including urban areas and things to be incorporated into your art. This movie is a perfect example of that poetry that I was talking about in Varda's work. She's present in a lot of this film. And I think that's what really makes it for me, everything being interpreted through her. It's the exact opposite of someone like Nick Broomfield shoehorning himself into his own documentaries to their detriment. Her commentary on what she is observing is essential to this film's success. Her disarming description of the process is great. She says she's going to take her small camera and walk among the colored cabbages. It's so very Varda to choose a modest and idiosyncratically beautiful detail like that to describe this process. And then the other simple but very potent observation that she makes that I love about gleaning as a whole, to bend down is not to beg. It's full of this kind of thing. And it's also notable that she abandoned more large-scale equipment for a handheld digital camera to shoot this. It really feels like it invigorated her a little bit, a new tool that helps her get close to things, something that makes everything feel more immediate. Highly recommended. What about you?
0: I too wanted to stick with another Varda experience, and I'm a Sandrine Bonaire fan, especially in La Ceremonie, which we've talked about on the show, so I chose Vagabond. By the way, Neither Shelter Nor Law, being the French title, from 1985, also written and directed by her, with Sandrine Bonaire as the titular vagabond. When we first meet her, she's dead, alone in a ditch of presumably natural causes, and her last weeks are reconstructed by interviews with the people she has come in contact with. So as I was watching the film, I was also reading bits and pieces about it, and I found this specific sentiment really troubling. The character fails morally and physically. This is a very young woman who refuses to conform to the strictures of being a woman on her own, even being seen as a woman, or using her body or her gender to play on others, but she is still discussed and analyzed by those others. So, what is the failing here? That she does what she wants with whom she wants and doesn't do what she doesn't want, or that she's raped? Anyway, questions we can talk about later. Vagabond came about 23 years after Cleo, and it seems like a natural exploration and extension of the female as object from Cleo. And it's devastating and incredible. And I love something that Agnes Varda said. I think that captures everything that we've been talking about. I love filming real people. I love to connect with the kind of people we don't know so well.
1: Just one quick note about my title as well. The poetry shows up in the original title in the French. The actual title is The Gleaners and the Gleaner, rather than the English translation of The Gleaner and I, which I much prefer the poetry of the original title.
0: Me too. So once again, that's two great recommendations the Gleaners and I, and Vagabond.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 128. If what we do here is valuable to you, and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We want to say a special thanks to our friends Matt and Travis over at The Complete Podcast for having you on to discuss the Three Colors Trilogy recently. The episode covering blue is up now and white will be coming soon.
0: Can't wait to get into that one and finish off with red. It's been a really great experience.
1: We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time, Doug McCambridge over at good times, great movies, Laura Cannon in the fatal films podcast, Scott Morris and the fine Gentleman of fuds on film, Andy Wolverton, grindhouse, Dave, Julie Castro, Terry Osterhout, Mike Scharf, Rob Langley, Jesse Dampolo, Joshua Wilson, Jeff Duncanson, Travis Trudell, Liam Fitzpatrick, Dean Estes, Patty Curry, Daisuke Beppu, David Parker, Ross McLeod, John Merrill, Michael Muck-Erdley, and Leanne Kubitsch. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts you can find us. Many thanks to Irish Rose Films for leaving us a very nice rating and review via iTunes Canada. We appreciate that very much. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.